0: Hi, it's Fraser here. Before we get into this week's Spiked podcast, I'd like to remind you all about Spiked supporters. Spiked supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked supporter and get access to a number of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop, and bookmark articles as you browse. This is all our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free, and yet so many of you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone anywhere can read us. We're so grateful for that. If you don't give to Spiked yet, then now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com/supporters to set up your donation and your Spiked supporters account. That's spiked forward slash supporters. Now, on with the show. Hello, and welcome to the Spikes podcast. I'm Fraser Myers, and with me this week, as ever, we have Spikes deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, climate change, the Kate Clancy scandal, and Geronimo the alpaca. So this week, the IPCC published its latest blockbuster report on the state of the climate. The UN Secretary General said that this was code red for humanity. Tom, uh, what have you made of the kind of discussion coming out of it this week? It's been completely
1: apocalyptic. And I think that's the thing that always happens whenever any kind of big climate change report lands from Mm -hmm. the IPCC or from anywhere else. They can't help but turn it into a kind of biblical narrative about, you know, fallen man having these plagues visited upon it because of its own hubris. I sound like I'm exaggerating, but you look at those front pages, yeah. this is exactly the way in which it was being portrayed. And this is genuinely a problem because climate change is an issue. It is a problem. There still needs to be discussion about how it needs to be addressed. I think the problem with all this apocalypticism is, first of all, is that it you know completely papers over the details. I mean, mm-hmm. this is fundamentally a document that runs into thousands of pages drawing together dry scientific research it paints a picture of a very clear problem but it doesn't necessarily lead to the idea that the world's going to end even on its own terms which is worth saying but also you feel like so much of this is about shutting down discussion and it's about following a kind of pre-packaged set of policy ideas which as we all know as we've been talking about for a long time are ones which involve backing technologies which don't work which are Mm. expensive in terms of renewables and expecting the world to put up with less Economic growth, um, reigning in the developing world, all the rest of it. And I think that's the problem with all, with this kind of level of alarmism in the portrayal of it, not necessarily in terms of the science itself, is because of the fact that it's just trying to kind of frog march the world, the developing world in particular, into a certain form of action. And that form of action just happens to be the one that will hit living standards. And slow the um, means through which people can actually lift themselves out of poverty. This is obvious, but you can't have that kind of discussion when you're told the world's going to end, which is why I think it's so important to push back on the narrative which is created in response to any of these reports.
0: Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, as you said, the apocalypticism has been off the charts. I mean, even scientists are kind of taking part in it. We had, you know, professors from the University of Oxford saying that it's going to be hell on earth and, and things like that. There is almost a kind of religious... Um, further, further to this, you know, it is it is payback for man's wickedness, for man's greed, for man's overconsumption. I mean, what have you made of that, Ella?
2: You know, you have to ask yourself the question: Who are these people trying to convince mm. by being so extreme? I mean, the, the the whole kind of Greta Thunberg phenomenon was about you know and her extremism and saying you know the. The planet is on fire was about, as she put it, trying to convince the political elite to do something to, you know, wake up in the night sweating and realize they had to take extreme action. Well, now it's the, you know, the political elite have taken on the narrative of Greta Thunberg and Extinction Rebellion and the whole idea that we are in a kind of semi-apocalypse. And, you know, actually even some of them are saying it's too late now. I've seen mm, some headlines yeah. that are like, you know, it's already going to happen. You think, well, bloody hell, it's got it's like flipped to the other end, but there's no <laughs> point in doing anything. So then you have to say, who are they trying to convince? And as we mentioned on the podcast, I think it was a few weeks ago, the whole kind of most of the green drive policies end up being something lame, like do your recycling a bit better, or maybe take fewer drives, uh, maybe take fewer you know trips abroad. And then you think, well, that doesn't quite match up with the, apoc- uh, the kind of apocalyptic tone. And then the real question is, as Tom says, it's about framing a kind of quite elitist kind of Semi-colonial throwback um, attitude to how the world is going to be organised, and the great piece, the great point you made in your piece, Fraser, was that the there's this sort of real Western. Uh, elitism to all of this, which is that no one seems to recognise that the reason why we can punce about with our recycling and, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and small time things is because we live in developed worlds that when, even when floods like the ones in London happen, there's pretty much a, a, you know, semi-decent infrastructure to deal with that. But when those things happen in developing nations, when those happen to people who aren't living in flats and developed cities, but in huts and in um, shanty towns, the the consequences are far more extreme. And so then to suggest that there should be a kind of a stalling of progress, a resistance to development, and as we mentioned before a kind of like allergic reaction to any expending of energy. Yeah. Any discussion about energy, you're condemning people to not just poverty but death. And that is what these climate alarmists are talking about this. They go on and on about how the poorest will die. Well, of course the poorest will die unless human beings do something and innovate to fix the issue of climate change. Of course human beings are having an effect on the planet. It's changing the world. That's because we do things and that affects our environment. How can we do things to make the environment hospitable and also a better quality of life for us in the future? It's, it seems so simple and yet they're so resistant to that. But that's
0: that's absolutely right. That's the context that is always missed that, you know, it's not just about what the environment does or how, you know, how the climate changes. The context is us and how we respond to it and how, we, you know, how our infrastructure responds to it. And that that is completely sidelined. I mean, you know, we always bring up this point, but it's, it's an important one that um, Bjorn Lomborg often makes that, you know, in the past hundred years of industrialization, and this is the same period when, you know, we would have been having an impact on the climate. You know, the po- world's population has quadrupled, but the number of people dying, um, the raw number of people dying from climate related disasters has, you know, shrunk by 99%. You know, and why is that? It's because actually as we become wealthier, yes, we are doing more to influence the climate. Of course we are. But we're also, you know, we're also better able to protect ourselves mm. with mm. fantastic infrastructure, with, you know, early warning systems, with all these, you know, great advancements that humanity has been able to make. Civilization is about fundamentally taming the climate, essentially. Mm.
1: I think Bjorn Lomborg also makes a great point in his New York Post piece in response to the IPCC report. Bjorn Lomborg, of course, is an environmentalist, a sceptical environmentalist, as he, as he puts it, very much against the alarmism in the mm. discussion at the moment. And he makes the point that, obviously, the report talks about um, global warming, but he also makes a point about extreme cold weather is decreasing, which is very important because more people die each year from extreme cold weather than extreme warm weather. Now, the fact that that detail doesn't even emerge, is just because of the fact that we are not centering humanity in this discussion. The climate Mm -hmm. is centred in Mm -hmm. this discussion. It's a completely wonky way to look at it. And I think it's interesting because this is another one of those situations in which you're kind of, you know, hit over the head with the science constantly, um, but it seems to me that a lot of people, certainly at national newspapers, have no idea what it is that they 're actually talking about, so of course, the recent floods in Europe and even in London have come up recently this is another example of why we have to take climate change seriously, according to lombard's assessment. The report itself says nothing about this, says it can 't find evidence to suggest that climate change, as we currently understand it, is fueling rivers to overflow, yeah. and all the rest of that. Another problem with that is you let a lot of politicians off the hook. I mean the floods in London this is a drainage issue, as far as yeah, I can tell yeah, on yeah. <laughs> anything else, and yet Again, if you just blame everything on the climate, then you're not going to see that. But this is the problem, is somewhere along the line, humanity is sidelined Mm. in this discussion. That's why, well, you know, the third world is just going to have to give up on having its full-blown industrial revolution. Too bad. That's why people can make those points and feel moral in making those points. It all comes down to the fact that humanity is at best sidelined in this discussion. And that's one of the things which is so striking about it and so striking that so many people on the left in particular seems so attached to this, you know, because a lot of this time we, we know this. Environmentalism is essentially a luxury that rich countries and rich individuals can enjoy. Yeah. That's what it comes down to. Certainly in its current formation. Not talking about the issue of climate change itself, this deep green politics, which the, is so mainstream. The, po- the
0: politics it? of the environment more so than exactly. the actual environment itself. And I think, you know, going back to your point about these people don't really know anything, I think there is a kind of really strange six former-ish politics that kind of emerges often in response to this. There is this sense that, well, the only reason we have climate change is because people like oil and the only reason they like oil is because they've been lied to by nasty rich people, mm-hmm. by, by the big, you know, fat cat capitalists. Not you know, remembering that the reason people you know use fossil fuels is to you know heat <laughs> their home, to fuel their car, and to, of course to power hu- the huge kind of industrial processes that keep us prosperous and keep us wealthy.
2: Yeah, there's a really infantile way of understanding it. I mean, everyone got their nicks in the twist about Boris Johnson's you know idiotic comments about mm. Thatcher being the first kind of eco warrior. Um, <laughs> That's sh- why she closed. Yeah, to shut <laughs> mind. which you know, putting aside Delicious. the relatively obvious you know disdain that someone like Boris Johnson would have for working class communities, which is uh, almost not worth saying. You know, it also kind of this idea that miners were pulling fossil fuels out of the ground for the sheer joy of it, because they really loved that (laughs) substance. It's, It's a complete misunderstanding of how people relate to uh, how they heat their homes. So no one's sitting there thinking, do you know what, I actually really prefer gas. I just like, it's <laughs> stupid. It's not how people think about it. Take into consideration cost and efficiency and you know, ease, what's there, what mm. works, what's already in the infrastructure. I think those of us who are um, sceptical of, as Tom says, the green politics, not environmentalism, not being considerate about the planet, but this kind of ultra green narrative, how to get better at putting forward a positive case for what development would mean. Because there's this real characterization of, you know, when you talk about development in the developing world, people sort of conjure up sort of set-faced individuals and like big factories pumping out fumes. And of course, that's not what, you don't have to redo the mistakes of the past. We now have new energy. no one talks about nuclear anymore, yeah. no, which would take a real kind of political will and a, re- and a real quite exciting commitment to how you would deal with energy better. I mean, there are things that could be done in the developing world that could then influence and make the West more efficient. All of these things are open. And if we get more positive about challenging the stereotypes and the sort of infantilizing way which we look at energy and the environment and start putting forward some, you know, not just talking about the cost to people, not just talking about important things like how this is decimating working class communities with the end of production, but also saying, what is our plan? What do we think could happen? And putting forward some of those more challenging, the apocalypse, uh, the kind of apocalyptic outlook with some reasonable, rational, and actually future-orientated ideas, challenging the kind of short-termism of, you know, stop drinking from plastic bottles and thinking, is there a way we can drink from plastic bottles and it not affect the planet? You know, get innovative about it. I
1: think the point about nuclear is is important to stress for a second, because I think the absence of that from the discussion just shows how this really isn't about the climate it's about something else it's about a kind of politics which has developed on the left this kind of disgust with industrial society really Mm. because think about something like nuclear is it offers the promise with a lot of investment and a lot of Mm. development of allowing us to continue to expand our living standards to power cities to you know for humanity to continue to grow and flourish whilst using an energy source which is green in two senses of the word you know this yeah. is something that is could generally be transformative the fracking thing is also quite similar as far as i think during the obama years in particular the embrace of fracking um, and therefore the the less reliance on on coal, obviously fracking isn't um, and gas isn't clean, but it's a lot cleaner than coal is. Is how the US quite drastically brought down its carbon emissions. But the the fact that that's still a dirty word, yeah. the fact that in the UK in particular, despite the fact we're sitting on a fair amount of shale gas and oil, there's still this inability to actually do anything with it, um, shows the fact that this isn't even really about the what they're saying it is, which is bringing down emissions and is about climate change. Informing it is this. Disgust, distaste mm. for industrialized society. It's yeah. this kind of neo-romantic sense in which we've sullied ourselves by pulling so many people out of poverty. That's what it comes down to. I mean, and that's why we've always got to be so conscious of that distinction between the issue of climate change and the politics of environmentalism, as you were saying earlier.
0: Exactly. And if the, the problem is if we if we solve the problem of climate change, if we solve the problem of carbon emissions through things like nuclear, through um, you know reducing it through um, through gas. I mean, that's not a perfect long-term solution but it's a very good medium-term solution then we get rid of the imperative to change our lifestyles to live in accordance with more kind of green ideas then you know then they can't tell us to Mm. (laughs) to take less journeys to travel less to you know live in your little um village (laughs) and live this kind of sparse and parochial parochial life essentially and that's and that's unfortunately you know the sort of technical solutions to this that's why they um that's why they create such anger among environmentalists. I mean, I suppose you should say don't trust uh, the environment with environmentalists might be the answer. because <laughs> uh, <laughs> they're, they're pretty much opposed to any you know, solution that allows for a better environment and keeps you know, humanity ticking over.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the idea of plenty... Um, of having more is now become a terrible thing. You've got all these theses coming out about what, how, you know, the the crisis of the environment and climate change could help us rethink our very limited, underst- you know, Western materialist understanding of being tied to our iPhones and our foreign holidays and, you know, how we could really live a simple life. And it's pretty much the same as when we talked about the lockdown and the yeah. way in which um, middle and upper class people dealt with this, the, the pandemic is like this period to be cool and reflect and how it's really good to kind of simplify life which is fine if you've got the resources to be able to live a simple enjoyable life but if you're not you don't have that choice and you don't have that um that offer of plenty of a life of luxury then it's then it's meaningless I mean there is let's not be crude about this it's not that we're just simply saying well everyone should have the right to have a new pair of night trainers every week but yes they should because it's not about fetishizing materialism it's about saying that there are things that there are kind of limits that human beings are still restricted by that we could push through you know in, if you sort of block the idea of materialism you also block the idea of changing our lives of the way in which you know I'm not opposed to electric cars and opposed to um different ways of travel but it's just that it's so fucking expensive mm. it's just that like that's the yeah. the main barrier and so then if you have a sort of a an opposition to the idea of production and of plenty then you don't innovate in lots of other ways so, you know never mind the kind of materialism of of holidays and stuff like that what about innovating inside? science and tech and the way we build houses all of these things are linked in together mm. so you don't have to take this as you say kind of sixth form-ish yeah. slightly um, sort of stupid uh, lefty very kind of simplistic view of uh, you know buying anything and capitalism and consumerism as bad man mm. it's like that that is a real restriction to thinking about how these things are all linked in terms of human progress in the round
0: mm. I'm starting to think 6th formish form-ish was maybe a bit too generous but there you go <laughs> i just I'm just on that point
1: because I think even in the kind of right-wing deflection point which is always to talk about China you see a bit of an essence of what we're talking about because the kind of things you know we're pretty good over here we're cutting our emissions but China over there opening all these new coal power stations again it's just missing the fact that the reason that in recent decades China has been able to lift millions and millions and millions of people out of poverty is because it has been industrializing and it's been burning a lot of coal and when you hear people the kind of very optimistic people you know, people making the point that, you know, in recent years, the number of people who've been in extreme poverty, the, the fact that if you look at humanity in total, life is so much better mm. on net because of all this. A lot of that is because of China. I yes. mean, this is the thing that people don't like to admit mm. in the context of all of this. But then there's the domestic part as well, because even if we're just talking about the impact of pe- people's lives in Britain, I mean, the Treasury's own analysis re- notes the fact that these net zero policies, which we've been talking about, will not only come at eye-watering costs, but the... um again, the burden of it would be borne disproportionately by working class people. And then yeah. when you see polls saying things like, most people in the country think that climate change is an issue. Many of them actually still think that the government isn't doing enough. But you asked them, would you be willing for this to hit you in the pocket? And I think the last opinion poll I saw was only 27% of people were happy to do that. There's a reason for that. And it's yeah. not because they're selfish. It's because people expect their lives to get better. Mm. That really at base is what politics is supposed to be about. Mm. And then to see... The left, try and make this a class issue, as you were saying, and in your piece you make the point that it gets this completely wrong way around, shows how much the left has lost it. Because if being left-wing or progressive doesn't mean trying to free people around the world from tyranny and poverty, broadly speaking, then it means nothing. Yet these people want to enforce less, not just on people here, but everywhere. So the, the left's attachment to this issue is completely bemusing, even though it's just taken as common sense at this point.
0: And we should talk a bit, um, you know, final point on this uh, this topic about democracy. I mean, that is fundamentally a problem in a democracy where you have a government essentially saying, well, not saying out loud, but enforcing, wanting to enforce austerity, a kind of very extreme form of austerity, much more than, you know, what we experienced um, five years ago, mm-hmm. that you will have less. I mean, how can they possibly survive that
2: yeah well this the whole kind of semi scandal rumbling on about the red wall voters and these sort of leaked whatsapp messages by in that show michael fabricant and some other tory mps who represent some of those red wall constituencies complaining about the fact that their voters are not going to take this um basically enforced austerity and you know take the cost of what the uh, net zero policies will mean you know is a as a little bit of a kind of ridiculous rumbling within the Tory party that doesn't mean much, but of course those red wall voters were sold in that in that previous general election the the idea that their communities would change, and that yeah. you know the leveling up agenda and skills and money being pumped into the areas of you know places where people haven't had jobs for decades um let alone the last few elections. And now what they the Tories are, are lining up their policies in line with is this net zero promise that all jobs or all opportunities of skills will have to be shoehorned into the um, tick-boxing of uh, anything that's climate change friendly. Mm. And that completely narrows the scope of any kind of opportunities that those people are going to have. It's going to mean less jobs, it's going to mean less opportunities, which is exactly what... Let's not forget that the Red Bull voters didn't suddenly take a look at Boris Johnson and think, hey, this looks like a guy who's on our side, let's go for him. It was framed under the, the promise that the Tories were going to be bringing in democratic promises alongside Brexit, but also that they said that they understood better that the, than the Labour Party, that these voters needed to be listened to. And Of course, this kind of the undemocratic nature of climate change policy, which is basically like we'll have no consultation, we'll just listen to the scientists, if that, and this is going to be an imposed kind of form of less, as Tom says. That's completely neglecting the promises that were made to those Red Wall voters and voters all over the country, not just the ones in the Red Wall constituencies that were voting on the basis, as most people do in general elections, as Tom says, of having more, of having change. And effectively, what this government is all about is saying there's going to be less and there's going to be change, but not in the places that you want it to be.
0: I hope you're enjoying the Spike podcast so far. I just wanted to give you another quick reminder that this episode is also available on video. So if you prefer to watch as well as listen to your podcasts, then why not check out the Spiked podcast on video whenever you get the chance. You can either go to the Spiked YouTube channel or go to the Spiked website at spiked-online.com. Now back to the podcast. So let's move on to um this week's big literary scandal. <laughs> this is the story about Kate Clanchy, who is being essentially being forced to rewrite her <laughs> book at Tom, do you want to tell us a bit about this?
1: It just reminds me of that Ray Bradbury quote about there's more than one way to burn a book. And I think this is the perfect example of this. So Kate Clanchish wrote this book, published in 2019, Some Kids I Taught and What They Taught Me. It's a kind of memoir talking about her time teaching in an Oxford comprehensive, um, her working with the pupils and teaching them how to write poetry and all this kind of stuff, um, and was widely praised at the time. It won the Orwell Prize. Um, again, was widely celebrated. And basically in recent weeks, it seems like a few people on Goodreads and on Twitter have started to claim that it's racist, basically, and ableist. There's a handful of quotes, largely descriptions of ethnic minority students, references to chocolate-coloured skin, almond-shaped mm. eyes, with the autistic students saying that they were unself-consciously odd and jarring company. A few things like this kind of wrenched out of all context you know the worst you say about those lines is they're probably not strictly politically correct in the way that things talk about these days maybe a bit hackneyed and cliched but certainly not racist and bigoted in intent that's pretty obvious and what's not surprising here is not that a handful of people on goodreads got upset about something that's par for the course of course people get offended by things all the time it's a pastime for a lot of people these days (laughs) what's strange as ever is why anyone is listening to these people so picador her publisher have issued not one but two apology statements (laughs) so far one of which saying that they were going to you know, update it for the next edition. And the other one, basically apologising for how weak the first statement was, you know, um, apologising for all the hurt that had been caused, etc. Kate Clancy herself originally stood up for herself a little bit, and has now backed down, said that she's listening, she's going to get the chance to rewrite it. At one point, she even says, I'm not a good person, as if she wasn't laying it on thick <laughs> Serious enough. Serious grovelling. Yeah, it's <laughs> very, very weird. <laughs> Philip Pullman, Um, an interesting character in the cultural, in his own right but um, who uh, defended her um, and then slightly complicated story but essentially um, backed down and then put out a statement saying again kind of uh, apologising for the hurt that he himself had caused you know we can tweet about why Boris Johnson should be hanging from a lamppost and not think any of it but you know again just defending someone who was being unfairly attacked (laughs) is a bridge too far apparently And it's just that striking way through which we might not have a kind of old-fashioned book burnings anymore, or book censorship, certainly, but mobs and institutional cowardice can certainly get you at least half of the way there, it feels like Mm. at the moment.
2: I mean, the thing about the comments is, and Joe Williams mentions this in her column for Spike this week, that the, you know, she says the point of the book is that it's actually kind of drippingly liberal. Yeah. It's like, a you know, love letter to these kids. And if you were going to take offence at anything in the book, it was this kind of like semi-patronising view that this sort of, um, you know, a teacher comes along and who decides that she's going to um, sort of examine her pupils and this kind of very liberal idea that kids can teach us as much as we can teach kids and yada, yada, yada and so the the sort of the comments particularly about the autistic kids about her finding their company jarring as Jo says reveals something more about her herself and her personality than it does about any societal view of how we would treat autistic kids she, we should so,
1: also say she's so self-facing i think in the book itself she talks about her concerns that she is just this liberal posh do-gooder and yeah, so, yeah. so privilege checking this individual mm, as well, yeah so. and
2: so you know and In the context of a book that has, it has to be said, not in, not a kind of million years ago, not back in the time, you know, dust bin of history, but relatively recently one awards won acolytes was praised and reviewed by people It was only last year that it got the orwell prize <laughs> yeah. it was published in 2019 the yes. 2020 orwell prize. Um, is shows that 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 this is not a kind of um you know a natural change in society thinking <laughs> differently about the way in which we talk about minorities or people with a, dis- a learning disability or otherwise it's about a shift in the uh, as tom says the kind of shrill nature of the debate around this i think uh, you know whatever about Clancy, kind of initially saying, I didn't say those things, perhaps kind of in a panic, and then afterwards um making this grovelling apology. You know, I have limited sympathy for but what I think is kind of 60% of the problem is kind of censors saying you can't publish this. Uh, but the rest of the 40% of the problem is people like Philip Pullman and publishers having that being a kind of taking a very cowardly line when it comes to this kind of stuff are not accepting their responsibility of people who can change the discussion around censorship, particularly in the world of literature. Because it's getting to the point now where an author is going to have to jump through so many hoops um, and, you know, check so many things and have sensitivity readers and all the rest of it before their stuff can get published, which means that the, the world of literature is going to become incredibly narrowed and incredibly politically constrained. And if Philip Pullman, with all his sort of, you know, whatever it is, I don't know what his net worth is, but he's a very wealthy man, very well connected, as Tom said, is very um, used to being slagging people off on Twitter, has a large (laughs) following, doesn't have the balls to stand up for someone when he really believes it and then gets kind of at this sort of Robotic kind of statement saying, "I how I retract my statement," which was definitely written by somebody else. Then you think, "Oh, you're part of the problem." It's going to start taking some people to step forward and, like Lionel Shriver or some other authors who we know well and have done this to say, "Whatever about my reputation, whatever about my book sales, this is something politically that's worth standing up for." We need to have more people like that and less cowards like Colin well, Clancy.
0: Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, there's there've been so many kind of literary scandals over the past couple of years to do with the culture wars, particularly around around race and stuff. And, you, you know, you do sort of wonder, hmm, is the liberal book world full of racists or is it that they're just hypersensitive to yeah. all this stuff? They just
1: discovered one book they published two years ago yeah, and they so- now found it. It just shows how much the kind of overton and shifted with this stuff, I guess, or how much institutional cowardice has grown. I mean, some of the accusations being thrown Clancy's way are so ridiculous. I mean, the BBC story on this quoted a few kind of ethnic minority authors and one of, one of them was saying that the book is almost unsavable Mm-hmm. uneditable in that sense because it's rooted in racism and phrenology. <laughs> Why are you listening to these people? These people are crazy yeah. as far as I'm concerned, but unfortunately they do rule the roost or they nevertheless can exert influence over these cowardly publishing houses. And what I think is quite um, interesting now is that a lot of this is coming from kind of within yeah. the publishing world. If you like, this one's a little bit more complicated, but if you think particularly about the stuff we've seen in America um, in the last couple of years in terms of publishing um, and North America more broadly – you know, the whole American dirt scandal, um, Janine Cummings' book, I think, mm-hmm. right, and saying. So, this again was quite fated. You know, Oprah Winfrey had um, celebrated this book. Noted um, bigot. Noted bigot, of course. Um, who. And because the book, um, depict it was about um, Mexican-American immigrants, broadly speaking, and because some people said that it was stereotypical and also she was a white woman profiting off of, or a non-Mexican woman, I should say, profiting off of their struggle, etc. They ended up having to cancel the book tour over safety concerns. I mean, this yeah. is utterly crazy. The, the, the other one, which always comes to mind, which was 2019, I think, is this young adult author called Amelie Wen Zhao, I think her mm. name was. She had a debut book coming out, um, so some sort of fantasy book as far as I can tell. I don't really know because no one really knows because it never came out. She yeah. pulped it because of the, and um, stops it going out because when they sent it out to readers and reviewers and stuff, word got out and people were suggesting that her depictions of slavery were insensitive and racist and all the rest of it. The pressure is kind of internal yeah. in a weird sort of way and that's one of the things which you think a lot of this industry is almost probably without, you know beyond saving for a couple of years. <laughs> and, and of
0: course there was that staff revolt in Canada um, yeah. at Penguin Random House over Jordan Peterson.
2: Staff
1: second revolt for- her chat over yep. you know, um, J.K. Ram- Children's book.
2: <laughs> but then it's so selective like the i would, i recently reviewed the authority gap by marianne seagull which is about women it's like an ode to FTSE 100 women and why we should care more about them and in <laughs> it she uses this example which I, like took me aback when she talks about um dawn butler's uh, you know interaction with someone allegedly saying the why are you in the lift you're a cleaner and that whole mm. the, the whole saga that happened there and marianne seagull in her book says the idea that she would be you know mistaken for an uneducated and ill-equipped person person who could never be in the room, you know, corridors of power and you think. Bloody hell. Like they would talk about stereotyping cleaners and having a like seriously anti-working class bent to this. That gets past the publishers like nothing. So there's a really disingenuous the disingenuous backstory to this is that it's not actually about writing better literature, about being more politically informed. It's about hooking on to very contemporary and superficial um ideas about what is and isn't the right thing to write about and what you do and you should and shouldn't have in terms of sensitivity in a book that is kind of nonsense. And we do have to start calling it out as nonsense rather than capitulating to it. And
0: finally, we should talk about the big story of the week, <laughs> at least as far as the tabloids are concerned. Um, well, even the New York Times has covered it. Um, the Labour leader has talked about it. It's, of course, Geronimo the alpaca. <laughs> who, uh,
1: who must die. Who must die. I, I yeah. said he
0: must die. Keir Starmer agrees. The first <laughs> position that Keir Starmer has ever taken first as Labour leader. The first time you two have ever probably agreed. First time I've ever agreed with <laughs> Keir Starmer is that this alpaca must die. Um, <laughs> Really, I, I mean, none of us particularly uh, care about um, the fate of animals. But the reason this story is so fascinating is because over a hundred thousand people have signed a petition um, calling for the alpaca to be saved. Mm. The the owner of um, the alpaca farm has spent eighty thousand pounds on legal fees and has she's raised a militia. In her her own in I don't think they're actually armed.
1: They're going to stand in the way of the bolt gun if it comes along. <laughs>
0: <laughs> how have people got to this stage where they've lost their minds to this extent it is completely irrational
1: that i mean that's the i mean obviously for anyone who isn't in the uk and hasn't been following this this alpaca was tested positive twice for bovine tuberculosis and obviously the concern is give it to other animals yeah. <laughs> and therefore there's a clear interest in killing this animal in order for the greater good both in terms mm. of animal welfare um as well as the economic impacts that bovine tuberculosis can have on on farming and livestock and all the rest of it. And this is why that the government has quite sensibly said this animal has got to go. Yeah, I think the problem is that I don't know whether it's, sentiment, it's just British sentimentality about animals mixed up with just the fact that animal rights along with environmentalism seems to just be continuing to assert itself as morally good, even if it is totally irrational. Yeah. But it's something in between those two things and a bit of silly season, no doubt, which has made this such a perennial issue because this is an open and shut case as far as anyone looking at it could surely think.
0: Yeah, the the, the test that has been given to Geronimo, um, it has a less than 1% false positivity chance <laughs> The the alpaca has been tested twice. The owner wants another test. I mean, it's just ridiculous.
2: It is ridiculous, and I think that it you know it is silly season. But also, there are people like Chris Packham who are involved. You know, noted um, extremely extreme not so for Chris Packham. No, but I mean, this like. he's an individual who's part of organisations and has said himself that you know in relation to. Uh, you know things like Ebola or the pandemic. That you know every microorganism, or every kind of uh, every cell has its place. Is someone who yeah. really is deluded in terms of the order of priority when you're thinking about how to organise a, a society.
0: Microbes' lives matter.
2: Yeah, and the and the important thing here is the reason why the alpaca has to die is not because it's fun to kill an animal for any reason, and not because you should ever kill an anim- animal unnecessarily, but because the the way in which we organise the difference between human beings and animals Animals is is because human beings are valued more and in this in the context of bovine TB the livelihoods of farmers in the area and actually across the UK are more important and the livestock of those are more important than this one individual's pet alpaca and you know the, the there is a more there's an important point to make about you know the the way in which the government handles TB because of course it's been endemic in the country for what 20 30 years now there's never been a serious conversation about how to deal with it there are farms all over the country who are constantly living with um you know orders against movement and living with tb and their livelihoods are damaged so you could have yeah sure let's have a discussion about how better to deal with tb how to perhaps eradicate it at some point in the future but to to this really tells you less about how we're dealing with tb and normal um kind of animal rights care mm. and more about how the discussion about Human beings' relationships with animals has become so blurred. Whether it's through mm. kind of you know the obsession with veganism, sort of militant veganism, or the the way in which we're now sort of pouring scorn on the idea that there should be animal testing for things like medicines or, yeah. or scientific research, that blurring of the distinction between humans and animals is very dangerous because of what it does is it denigrates the specific superiority and that, you know you almost get pilloried for saying that, but the superiority of human beings and why protecting human beings is more important than protecting animals.
1: I mean this is the point is when you concede that principle that humans are more important that human lives are far more valuable you do end up in weird places I mean the Geronimo story is a kind of funny one on the scale of things but you know the, this is a point you highlight in your piece Fraser that BuzzFeed investigation from a couple of years ago which found that the WWF were funding armed guards guards is a polite way of putting it who had killed and tortured people to try and clamp down on poaching Yeah. so when you concede that animal lives are as important as human lives. This is the moral muddle that you get into. I mean, the Geronimo thing is silly, but ultimately that's where you end up. And it's just, it boggles the mind that more people can't see this.
0: Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.